Well, good morning. I am very honored to get to be with you at First Christian here in Greenville today. And I do bring you greetings from Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. Uh, FCC has been a partner with us, a supporter of our mission. For those of you unfamiliar with Ozark, we are a classic Bible college in Joplin, Missouri, and we train men and women for Christian service. That has been our mission for over 80 years. Uh, ben Allen, Ben Harris right here on your staff are graduates of Ozark. And uh, because we've been doing that so long, our graduates have now taken the gospel to all 50 states, over 100 countries around the world. And that's because of partnership with congregations like this one. So I just would say thank you. We are very, very grateful for your partnership. Now, you might recognize uh, that the city named Joplin, Missouri. In fact, you may remember 12 years ago, uh, May 22nd, 2011, there was an EF5 tornado that swept through our community of Joplin, Missouri. Um, terrible destruction, 8,000 homes gone. Fortunately, our family's home was not hit, but we had uh, some very dear friends whose house was, in fact, hit by the tornado. They were okay, but they needed a place to live while their home was being rebuilt. So for four months, this other family moved in to live with our family while their home was being rebuilt. Now, here's what you need to know. My wife, Katie, and I, uh, we have six children, six kids, all right? Uh, just wait. Um, the, uh, the family that moved in to live with us for four months, they have nine children, all right? <laughs> yeah, so you're doing the math in your head right now, six plus nine, and yes, I had a thousand kids living in my house. They were everywhere. I brought a picture. I think it's going to be up here on the screen, and there you go. They were, you know, just all kinds of kids, and in fact, um, uh, right about my, my daughter Lydia during this time um, was talking with some of her little girlfriends, and these girls were talking about what they collect. And um, one of the girls said that she collected coins, and another little girl said she collected stuffed animals. Somebody turned to my daughter Lydia and said, Lydia, what do you collect? And she said, I collect brothers and sisters. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's, that's what I feel like I'm doing here this morning at FCC. I'm, I'm just collecting some new brothers and sisters in Christ. I really am honored to be with you here today. Now, if you have your Bibles, would you grab them, open them up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is going to be our text for today's message. And the title of today's message, Pass the Baton, Pass the Baton. Matthew chapter 9, if you'll just hold that for a few minutes. Andy Stanley one time said this, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. This was a few years back. My friend Chris Duncan uh, came to preach in the chapel at the Bible College where I served. Now, Chris was on staff with the church in Las Vegas, and when he came to Joplin to preach in our chapel, during the sermon, he told the story of a man that he had been able to baptize into Christ just the week before there at his church. Now, this man's name was Mike, and we are actually going to call him Mike the homeless guy because Mike had been homeless. He was living on the streets of Las Vegas, but in his sermon, Chris shared that there was a lady in the church, and we're going to call her the Las Vegas sandwich lady because her ministry was to go out onto the streets of Las Vegas to hand out sandwiches to the homeless, strike up a conversation, begin to talk to them about Jesus. And it was there on the streets of Las Vegas that she met Mike. 
began a friendship, began to talk to him about Christ, eventually was able to lead this 50-year-old homeless gentleman to the Lord. And my friend, Chris, was then able to baptize him uh, into Christ. It was a great story that he told in the chapel sermon about, about growing out, reaching out with your faith. Wonderful story. But as I was sitting there in chapel that day, all of a sudden it hit me like a lightning bolt out of the blue. I knew what my friend Chris didn't know. I knew what Mike the homeless guy could never have known, and that is that his story actually started 60 years before in a little town called Gilbert, Arkansas. Now, 60 years before, a man named Walter Goodman uh, was living there in Gilbert, Arkansas, population 100. I'm guessing you've never been to Gilbert. I have. Just a little bitty burg. And Walter Goodman was a vanilla salesman, just a, an ordinary uh, volunteer leader in the church. But there was a young man there in Gilbert, Arkansas, a high schooler by the name of Roy Wheeler. Now, Roy Wheeler was an all-star basketball player. Roy Wheeler was dating one of Walter Goodman's daughters. And because of the witness of the Goodman family, they were able to lead Roy Wheeler to give his life to Christ at age 18. When Roy Wheeler graduated from high school, Walter Goodman sat down with Roy, and he said, Roy, what are you going to do with your life? And Roy Wheeler said, um, I, I don't really know. And Walter Goodman said, well, I'll tell you what I think you ought to do. He said, I think you ought to go to Ozark Christian College. I think you ought to play basketball for him. And he said, who knows? Maybe the Lord will make you a preacher. And Roy Wheeler said, Okay. <laughs> And so, in the fall of 1950, with a, a little bit of, of financial assistance from, from Walter Goodman, Roy Wheeler enrolled as a freshman at Ozark Christian College in 1950. Now, uh, he'd only been just there just a, a couple of months as a student. It was still his first semester of his freshman year when Roy Wheeler walked into the president's office, President Edwin Strong. And Roy Wheeler said, President Strong, he said, I want you to help me get a preaching ministry, a little, little weekend ministry, a little church I can preach at on the weekends. And President Strong said, oh, Roy, I'm glad to hear you want to preach. But he said, to be honest, I'm not really sure that you're ready for that. I mean, you've only been here a couple months, still just a freshman. He said, besides, I've been watching you these last couple months. He said, it seems to me that, that all you're really interested in is, is basketball and girls. And, uh, and Roy Wheeler said, oh, no, sir, you're wrong. He said, I'm interested in girls and then basketball. <laughs> and, and President Strong laughed. And and he took Roy Wheeler under his, under his wing and, and began to mentor him and began to invest in him and teach him. And, and eventually he did help Roy Wheeler get a little church to begin to preach at on the weekends. And he said, President Strong, well, what, what do I preach now that I've got? What, what, do I, what do I preach? He said, just preach the Bible. He said, and you tell them that Jesus loves all kinds of people. That'll help them grow out. And so Roy Wheeler did. When Roy Wheeler graduated from Ozark, um, he actually ended up going down to a little church in Texas, Amarillo, Texas, uh, to a little church called Paramount Terrace Christian Church. Now, this church was running maybe about 150 uh, folks or so at the time, but Roy Wheeler just went, began to love on people, began to preach the Bible, began to tell them that Jesus loves all kinds of people. And boy, did that church start to grow out. That little church of 150 today, uh, Paramount Terrace Christian Church down in Amarillo, Texas, runs over 8,000 people. Now, back in the 1980s, um, there was a young man that walked in the doors of that church there in Amarillo, Texas, Paramount Terrace Christian Church. Uh, and that young man's name, he was a teenager at the time, was Judd Wilhite. Now, his life was a mess. He was an alcoholic. He was addicted to drugs. His life had fallen apart. That's why he walked in the doors of this church. He had hit rock bottom. And when he walked in the doors of Paramount Terrace Christian Church, they'd heard a lot of sermons on how Jesus loves all kinds of people. He was met by some folks that just welcomed him with open arms. And 
And they uh, began to answer his questions and just love on him and help him begin to pick up the pieces of his life. In fact, Roy Wheeler took Judd under his wing and began to mentor him and invest in him. And eventually he said, you know, Judd, I, I think you ought to be a preacher someday. Today, Judd Wilhite is the preacher of Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. Been preaching about how Jesus loves all kinds of folks there for a long time. That church there in Vegas these days runs over 30,000 people. Now, I've known Judd for a long time. Judd told me a story one time about a young man in his congregation there in Las Vegas named Cody. We're actually going to call him Cody the Fisherman because his vocation, his actual job, he was a professional fisherman. That's how he made his living until Cody got caught up in the throes of a drug addiction. He got addicted to meth. Cody ended up selling his fishing boat, ended up selling his house to pay for drugs. Cody ended up homeless himself on the streets of Las Vegas. In fact, he ended up at one point living in a field across the street from Central Christian Church there in Las Vegas. And at one point, things had gotten so bad that Cody had gone over three months without a bath. Later, he said that he smelled so bad, even the other homeless guys didn't want to hang out with him. And, uh, and he said that he had heard that that church across the street, Central Christian Church, would give a hot meal and a hot shower to anybody that walked in. And, and Cody didn't want anything to do with God, but he knew that he needed a shower. And so one Sunday morning, Cody walked in the doors of Central Christian Church there in Las Vegas. Now, when he did, he was met in the lobby by a lady named Michelle. And we're just going to call her Michelle the soccer mom because Michelle wasn't on staff there at the church. She was just an ordinary soccer mom, a volunteer greeter in the church lobby that day. And when Cody walked in, she spotted him from across the lobby. She could instantly size up the situation. Uh, dirty clothes, long, gaunt face, long beard, greasy uh, hair, and could smell him even across the lobby. Knew that he was homeless, probably addicted to drugs. But she'd heard a lot of sermons on how Jesus loves all kinds of people. So she just walked right up to Cody. First words out of her mouth. She said, you look like you could use a hug. He was taken aback. He said, oh, ma'am, you, you, don't, you don't want to hug me. I don't smell. He didn't even get the whole sentence out before she wrapped him up in the biggest bear hug you'd ever seen. And she said, Jesus loves you, and so do I. Cody would later say that that was the moment that God began to soften his heart. Two weeks later, Cody was baptized into Christ. Now, fast forward four years, Cody is now clean, he's sober, he's married, he got a little business, serving in the church there in Las Vegas, when one night on the evening news, Cody hears a story, the mayor of Las Vegas has just instituted a citywide policy, it was now illegal to hand out food in public places to homeless people. Las Vegas was once voted the meanest city in America to the homeless. And it was now against the law to hand out food to the homeless on the streets of Las Vegas. When Cody heard that story on the news, he thought, that's not right. Jesus loves all kinds of people, even homeless people, guys like I once was. And so Cody the fisherman, true story, decided to take the mayor of Las Vegas to court to challenge the constitutionality of that policy. Now, the mayor of Las Vegas was himself a lawyer. So on the day of the proceedings, you've got the mayor of Las Vegas, you've got his entire legal team, and they've got power suits and power ties and briefcases. And over here on this side of the courtroom was Cody the fisherman and his one lawyer. And do you know what the judge said? She said, Cody, I think you're right. This is unconstitutional. And she overturned that policy. And today, it is legal in Las Vegas to hand out food to the homeless in public places because of Cody the fisherman. All of which means this. 
As I was sitting there in chapel that day, listening to my friend Chris talk about baptizing Mike, the homeless guy, the week before, I realized that the reason he'd been able to baptize Mike was because he'd been led to Christ by the Las Vegas sandwich lady who was handing out sandwiches in the first place because it was now suddenly legal due to Cody the fisherman, who had become a Christian because he had experienced the love of Christ from Michelle the soccer mom, who had heard so many sermons on how Jesus loves all kinds of people from Judd Wilhite, who himself had experienced that love at Paramount Terrace Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas, under the ministry of Roy Wheeler, who was a preacher in the first place because a vanilla salesman in Gilbert, Arkansas, named Walter Goodman, sat him down and said, Roy, I think you ought to go to Bible college and maybe God will make you a preacher. Now, I'm sure that Walter Goodman had no idea the ripple effect, the thousands of lives that would be influenced because of that one conversation. But Walter Goodman did know this. He knew that your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. When I was in high school, I ran track. I was the third leg of the four by 800 meter relay. And if our coach said this to us once, he said it to us dozens of times. He'd say, boys, races are won and lost at the passing of the baton. I knew that no matter how hard I had run my leg of the race, my job was not complete until I had successfully passed that baton to the next runner. There is no success without a successor. Somebody put it this way. The legacy of each generation is the leadership of the next. The leadership you leave for the next. And that's true. No matter how impressive your accomplishments might be, your legacy is not complete until you have raised up those leaders in the next generation who will carry on your work after you are gone. And one of the most important questions you can ask yourself, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your home, or whether it's right here at church, one of the most important questions you can ask yourself is this. Who's taking my baton? Am I intentionally passing on my work, my leadership to someone in the next generation? That's where races are won and lost. The legacy of each generation is the leadership of the next. Now, nobody understood that better than Jesus. You got your Bibles open there in Matthew chapter 9. I want to look at this passage with you together today. Throughout Scripture, we see the baton being passed. Moses passes it to Joshua, Elijah to Elisha, Paul to Timothy. And in our text today, we're going to see Jesus begin to pass the baton to the 12 disciples. This text, we're going to start in Matthew 9, verse 35. We're going to read down through chapter 10, verse 4. This is the calling of the 12 disciples. Let's read it together. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And he called his, his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. 
and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now let's stop right there. You know this story. Jesus has been traveling around village to village. He's been preaching. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. Most powerful ministry that the world has ever seen. But Jesus knows two things. First thing he knows, he's not going to be around very long. Jesus knows he only has three years before his crucifixion, before his resurrection, his ascension back to heaven. And he knows that if his ministry is going to carry on, he's going to have to raise up those in the next generation who will continue to do his work. He's going to need to pass that baton. Now, these 12 apostles that he calls to himself, uh, scholars tell us were probably between the ages of 18 and 25. So these are college-age guys. And Jesus is forming a little Bible college. These 12 young future preachers that he's going to train and mold and mentor and invest in because he knows he's not going to be around very long. The second thing Jesus knows is that 12 will not be enough. He looks out at this huge crowd and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so he turns to his disciples and he says, guys, I'm handing you the baton, but you're going to have to hand the baton to those in the next generation. Ask, ask God to raise up those next generation workers for the harvest field. Guys, you have to raise up leaders too. Let the relay continue. Let the chain remain unbroken. The legacy of your generation will be the leadership you leave to the next. Now, First Christian Church of Greenville, here's what I came to you this morning to say in a sentence. God is calling us as a church to raise up the next generation of vocational kingdom leaders. That's what I came to say. God is calling us as a church to raise up young men and women who will give their vocational lives, their working lives to kingdom work, to reaching the lost, to preaching the word, to leading the church. We are called to pass that baton of kingdom leadership. Now, that is what I am giving my life to. Um, I am a preacher, but for the last 27 years, I've also been a teacher of preachers. Uh, they're at the Bible college, and I, I, I still get to teach uh, that, that preaching class every semester. And, and I am literally giving myself to this work for one uh, a very simple but very deep conviction that I have, and it's this. Preaching really matters. Now, you know as well as I do that that sentence to a lot of people out there in the world would sound pretty silly. Can I get an amen? Preaching really matters. Uh, preaching doesn't make any real difference in the real world. And that, that would sound so silly. I mean, you've heard the jokes about preaching. I've heard the jokes about preaching. I will tell you a joke about preaching. <laughs> Preacher, elder, deacon, out in the woods, deer hunting, up in the deer stand, huge buck crosses the clearing. Preacher, elder, raise their rifles at the exact same time, fire simultaneously, buck goes down, but they don't know which one of them shot the deer. Deacon says, wait right here, brothers. And he hops down out of the, the deer stand. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll go check it out. I'll tell you who shot the deer. Runs over there across the clearing, bends over, checks out this buck, hollers back. He says, it's the preacher's buck. The preacher shot the deer. The elder says, well, how can you tell? How, how do you know? Deacon says, well, I, I can see right here. The, the, the bullet went in one ear and right out the other. <laughs> and that's what people think about preaching, and you know that I'm right. 
It's a joke. It's a punchline in one ear and out the other. Preaching doesn't make any real difference in the real world. Preaching really matters. But you know that the Bible paints a completely different picture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, that God in his wisdom has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Did you catch that? God chose the foolishness of preaching to save the world. I, I tell my preaching students that when they uh, uh, stand up on a Sunday morning and they take this book in front of God's people and they open up the word of God, this book has the power literally to transform lives. Can I, can I tell you what I'm reminded of this the most? It's when I'm preaching a bad sermon. Now, I know this never happens for Tyson, but I'm just telling you that for me, sometimes when I get up on a Sunday morning, I start preaching and I can tell pretty quick, hey, it's not working today. <laughs> I am not connecting. This one is just not communicating. I had, I had a friend, uh, when we were in Bible college together, um, he, he went out one Sunday morning to go preach at this little bitty country church, and, uh, and he said the sermon that morning was just a bad sermon. I mean, it was a belly flop of a sermon. He knew it was bad. The church people knew it was bad, but church people are super nice, right? And so afterwards, he's in the lobby shaking everybody's hands as they're leaving, and they're all saying, oh, nice job, nice job, nice sermon, nice job. One lady said, Nice try. <laughs> ah, I have had my share of nice try sermons. You're following me here, right? And on those, on those, on those Sundays, when I, I can just tell, man, it's just not working today. I'm just going to be honest. I kind of want to just get done as quick as I can and go home, and I'll come back next week, right? I just want to be the hasty retreat. I'm a little disappointed. I'm a little embarrassed. And so I, we're going to sing one verse of the invitation song so I can get out of there as fast as I can. I'll try again next week, but, but you know, we're just kind of all done for today. But God, in his great celestial sense of humor, will often give me my best response to my worst sermons. Just to remind me that it's not about me, right? And so some Sunday I'm up, I'm preaching, and man, you talk about a belly flop, it's just not good at all. And I'm trying to get out of there as fast as I can. We're singing the one verse of that, of that invitation song. But lo and behold, people are walking down the aisle. And folks are making decisions for Christ. And here's this lady. She's shaking my hand. And she's saying, oh, you have no idea how that touched me. And I'm thinking, you're right. I have no idea how that touched you. And, and, yet, and yet, if I'm honest, I do know how that touched her. Because as terrible as my words may have been, if I have been faithful to God, God's word. His word is still powerful. The promise of Isaiah chapter 55, God says this. He says, my word, which goes out from my mouth, will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, uh, penetrating even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It penetrates and judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. I love, I love what one preacher says. There's a preacher named Leonard Sweet. Leonard Sweet says that on the front cover of his Bible, he has engraved the letters TNT, because he says this book is a stick of dynamite. He says this book can blast sinful fixations. It can explode old habits. It can detonate new devotion. He says this book can release enough energy to move any mountain and mend any life. And he says, he says if I hear one more time some Christian sigh and say, oh, well, the, the church just can't compete with Hollywood, he says, I'm going to twist somebody's tongue. He says, it is Hollywood that cannot compete with the Holy Word. Nothing on earth can compare with the power of God's Word to transform lives. And that's why I tell my students that when they grab their Bibles and they stand up on a Sunday morning and they open them up and they begin to preach and teach, oh, listen, human, human eyes, human eyes may just see some old guy, you know, getting ready to monologue for 30 minutes uh, from some dry, dusty old book, but spiritual eyes. They see something else because at that moment, I am telling you that there are 10,000 angels leaning over the balconies of heaven holding their breath 
wondering what will happen if this time these souls really hear. And there are 10,000 angels that are glaring up through the, uh, demons that are glaring up through the gates of hell, and they are licking their lips. They are gritting their teeth. They are hoping, hoping that no one will pay attention. The air is crackling. It is electric. It is charged with supernatural possibilities because all of heaven and all of hell knows that at that moment, eternity literally hangs in the balance. Because if that word that is preached, if that is humbly received, those lives will never be the same. Proud hearts will be broken. Wounded spirits will be bound up. Spiritual adrenaline will surge through weary souls. Final, eternal destinies will be forever altered because God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save the world. Preaching really matters. All of which means this. We need more preachers. We need more missionaries. We need more church planters. We need more youth ministers. We need more young men and women who will give their working lives to sharing this word, the message of Jesus Christ with the lost world, who will give themselves to leading the church and reaching the lost and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. I, uh, I brought a quiz with me here today. I'm a teacher. That's what I do. Let's see how well you do. Just four questions, all right? They're, in fact, uh, they're going to pop up on the screen here. Let's see how well you do on this little quiz. Here is, here's question number one. Uh, my, my son is a preacher in Indiana, and so you may not know this, but there is one Christian church for every 10,000 people in the state of Indiana. If you wanted to reach that same ratio in the New York City metro area, how many churches do you think we would need to plant? Answer, 2,000. Who will plant those churches? Question two. There are about 6,500 languages in the world. My nephew is a Bible translator. How, how many of those languages have no portion of Scripture translated? Answer, about 3,000. Wow. Who will translate those Scriptures? Question number three. There are 16,000 people groups, ethnic groups in the world. How many of those groups are unreached? By that we mean less than 2% have even heard the gospel. Answer, almost 7,000. Who will reach those people groups? Last question. How many people die without Christ around the world every minute? Answer, 72 every minute. That means that as I stand here at a rate of more than one a second, there is someone who is going into a Christless eternity. Who will reach those lost souls with the good news of Jesus Christ? Listen to me, brothers and sisters. The harvest is still plentiful and the workers are still few. And we as the church are called to raise up the next generation of vocational kingdom leaders. So could I spend the last few minutes talking about how you could do that as a congregation. This is one of the ways that you grow young. And I, I want to give you three just practical suggestions. I'm going to frame them up as questions. Here's the first question. Will you say something? Will you say something? I don't know if you noticed this in our text, but um, in, our, in our passage, uh, Jesus didn't just wait around and like quietly hope that some young men would sign up for ministry and follow in his footsteps. No, it says that Jesus actually 
called them. He summoned them. He, he verbally gave them an invitation to follow in his footsteps. He said something to them. He spoke to them. When you see a young person who you think might have ministry potential, kingdom leadership potential, would you say something? Would you just plant a little seed thought in their head? Hey, you know what you'd be good at? I wonder if you've ever thought about, and I hope you keep your eyes open. These young people might be the A-plus kids in the youth group because you know what? God's mission in the world deserves the cream of the crop, the best and the brightest. But it might not be the A-plus kid in the youth group. Um, I'm reminded of a time when um, President uh, George W. Bush, when he was serving as president, um, President Bush, uh, in his uh, tenure in office, went to go speak at his alma mater, Yale University. He was speaking at their graduation ceremony, and there at the commencement, President Bush stood up, and he said, uh, uh, to all of you A students today who are graduating with honors, I say congratulations. And to all of you C students graduating today, I say you too could be president of the United States. <laughs> and you know what? It might, it might not be the A-plus kid in the youth group. It might be that C-minus kid in the youth group that actually has kingdom leadership potential. It might be that, that squirrely kid that will not absolutely sit still in class. But you know what? That kid might have absolute kingdom energy that you need to unleash. When you see something, will you say something? D.P. Schaefer was still preaching every single Sunday at the age of 80. First Christian Church of Connetville, Pennsylvania. One Sunday, Youth Sunday, had lots of kids involved in the service. There was a little first grade boy that got up there in Connetville and during the service quoted from memory a large portion of John chapter 14 that he had memorized. Afterwards, D.P. Schaefer went up to that boy, a little boy, and kind of tussled his hair and he said, young man, he said, that was great. He said, you'd be a good preacher someday. That little boy never forgot those words. That little boy's name was Bob Russell. Bob Russell went on to be the preacher of Southeast Christian Church, Louisville, Kentucky, for 40 years. Helped that church grow from 120 to 20,000 people. And D.P. Schaefer knew that your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God might not be something you do, but someone you raise. Will you say something? Here's suggestion two, question two. Will you pay something? Will you pay something? I want you to look at our text here because in our passage, Jesus calls these 12 disciples and then he sends them out to go preach and listen to what he tells them as he does. He says, do not take along any gold or silver or copper. He's saying, don't take any money with you. Let the people in the villages support you. Why? Because he says, the worker is worthy of his support. Now, I'm a Bible college president, which means you were expecting me to talk about money, right? Uh, you know that's like a pretty fair portion of my job description is fundraising. That's, that's what we do. In fact, they, when a, a Bible college president dies, the, uh, the Bible verse they put on his tombstone is Luke 16, 22, and then the beggar died. This is my life right there, okay? And, uh, and I got people come up to me and they're like, oh man, I can never do what you do, you know, going around asking people for money all the time. And to be honest, when I was a kid, it wasn't like I was thinking, I'd like to be a professional fundraiser someday when I grew up. Uh, but you know what? I absolutely believe in our mission at the Bible College. We get to spend all day, every day, all week, literally training men and women to take the gospel to a lost world. And if raising dollars will raise up leaders to do that, I'll ask for money eight days a week. Listen, here in, here in our country, um, the United States Army has the military academy at West Point. Um, to train up leaders for our nation's battles there at West Point. And we, as U.S. taxpayers, underwrite the education of those West Point cadets. Why? Because we believe that leadership 
matters. The church has Bible colleges and seminaries to train up the next generation of leaders for our spiritual battles. And it is right for us as believers to help underwrite the education of those students because we believe that leadership matters. And here's what I love telling people is that when you do that, when you invest in a future kingdom leader, somebody who's going to spend their life telling other people the gospel, the return on that investment is huge and it is eternal. Can I, can I tell you about my son, Luke? Um, when, when I think you'll see a, a picture of him. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but uh, when my son Luke was in high school, he was a good kid. He was a good kid. But Luke was a totally squirrely kid. Luke is an adrenaline junkie. He loves, you know, just doing dangerous stuff and taking risks. And he loves pranks. He pulls pranks all the time. And, uh, and in fact, I, I could tell you that when, when Luke was in high school, uh, he never got arrested. He never got arrested. But we did get a phone call from the police station to come down and pick him up at 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning because of a prank that he had pulled, right? And, uh, and so this is my son, Luke. Totally squirrely, but a good kid. He loved Jesus. He, you know, his faith was real. He's a natural-born leader. He's a smart kid. And so in high school, he got a big academic scholarship to the University of Missouri. He's going to go to Mizzou, maybe be an engineer. But right near the end of his, of his senior year, like God got a hold of him, and, and he felt this call into ministry. And so he scrapped his scholarship and his, and, uh, you know, his plans to go to Mizzou. And instead, kind of last minute, he ended up enrolling at, at Ozark Christian College and felt this call into ministry. Now, before, before he even started classes, I sat Luke down. I said, buddy, I'm super glad you're going to be at school. All right? Uh, but before you begin this semester, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to the dean of students' office. I want you to walk in. I want you to introduce yourself. I want you to get to know him. Because this year, at some point, you will end up in his office, prank boy, and you're going to need a pre-existing relationship. And he laughed, ha, 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 and he went and did it. And, uh, and that, let me explain the picture. So during his freshman year speech class, he knew he had a demonstration speech that would be coming up near the end of the semester. So all semester long, Luke's been kind of growing out his hair, growing out his hair. And on the day of his demonstration speech, where you got to show how to do something, he comes to class, title of his demonstration speech, How to Give Yourself a Mullet. And he takes clippers and gives himself a mullet right there in class. And uh, he'd actually been trying to grow a mustache all semester to go with it, but he couldn't. So that's actually Sharpie marker. I kid you not. That is Sharpie. <laughs> all right. And, and then he decides, hey, I should retake my senior pictures and go full redneck. And so he gets his cutoff shirt and hay bales and fishing pole behind our house and all that stuff. And we could not be more proud of the boy. But that's, that's the before picture. That's the before picture. Can I show you the after picture? Here's the after picture. Um, this is Luke now. Luke is, is 29, and uh, Luke is a preacher of a church in Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, he married a, a wonderful young lady, beautiful, uh, godly young lady there named Rebecca. In fact, can I tell you um, how they met? Um, Rebecca, they were both students together, but Rebecca was a student assistant in the dean of students' office. <laughs> I kid you not. He was in there so often, they struck up a friendship, he talked her into dating him, and now they're married. And gave us three wonderful grandsons. And listen... When my son Luke went to, when he went to Bible college, he wasn't ready to do any of that. He wasn't ready to be a husband. He wasn't ready to be a father. He wasn't ready to preach or ready to lead a church. And yet there were men and women there at Ozark who came around him. And, and for five years, they poured into him and loved him and taught him and mentored him and challenged him. And um, I, uh, 
this was not too long ago, I got to go listen to my son preach at Plainfield Christian Church there in Plainfield, Indiana, where he's, the, where he's the preacher. And it was what they call Baptism Sunday. And so Luke got up and he preached the sermon on baptism and then they offered an invitation. And I think you'll see uh, this next picture um, that they had, they had 23 people that walked down the aisle that Sunday. I, got, I sat there and got to watch this. Uh, that came down and he got to baptize 23 people that morning into Christ. And I'm I used to think that getting to baptize someone into Jesus was the greatest joy in ministry. And it is a high and holy privilege that I, that I get. But now I would tell you that the greatest joy in ministry is getting to see someone that you helped teach and that you helped train and invest in. To see them baptize somebody into Christ. The way somebody put it, they said, my fruit now grows on other people's trees. Now, what I want to tell you is that as one of our supporting churches, as, as somebody who is a part of the ministry and mission of Ozark Christian College, that's your fruit. Those 23 baptisms, that's your fruit that's growing on my own son's tree. That's why I'm so grateful for that kind of investment because I'm telling you that when you, when you actually help pay for that future kingdom leader, the return on that investment is huge and it's eternal. And your your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. So will you pay something? Last question, I'll be done. Will you pray something? Will you pray something? That's literally what Jesus tells us to do in this passage. Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Jesus says, harvest is plentiful, workers are few. What does he say? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to, to send out workers into his harvest field. Is that a prayer that you pray? Do you regularly pray that God would raise up more workers for the harvest field? When you leave this morning, there's a, a table out there, um, and, and on the table, you're going to see that there's a, a basket with these little keychain tags in there. And we'd love for you to take one. On one side, it says Ozark Christian College, but on the other side, it just has Matthew 9:38. Pray for more harvest workers. And would you just take one of those, and would you use that as a prayer reminder? Put that somewhere where you'll see it. Maybe it's on your keychain. Maybe it's on your mirror as you get ready in the morning or by the chair where you sit at night. Wherever it is, would you use that as a prayer reminder to pray that God would raise up kingdom workers from this very church? I'll tell you one more story, and I'll be done. Um, can, I, can I just share my personal testimony? I, I grew up knowing I was supposed to be a preacher. When I was in seventh grade, every Sunday, the ritual was the same. My hometown preacher, we called him Brother Bill, every Sunday, Brother Bill would get up, he would preach, and then he'd go stand in the lobby and he'd shake everybody's hands as they were leaving church. And when I was in seventh grade, the ritual was the same every Sunday. Brother Bill would ask me the same two questions each week. This was his, this was his liturgy with me. I'd go uh, out the door, and, and Brother Bill would grab my hand every Sunday, and these were the two questions he'd ask me. Uh, he'd, say, he'd say, Matt, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'd say, a preacher, you know, because puberty's a killer, man. And, uh, and he'd say, where are you going to go to college? And I'd say, Ozark Christian College. And he'd say, that's my boy. And he'd slap me on the back, and he'd send me out the door every week like that. And I just grew up knowing I was supposed to be a preacher. But when I got into high school... Um, I pulled to Jonah. I ran away from the call of God on my life. I was a very good student in high school, national merit finalist, got a big academic scholarship at the University of Iowa. And so I ended up scrapping my plans for Bible college, scrapping my plans for ministry. And instead, 
I went off to the University of Iowa. I enrolled as a journalism major, Tom Brokaw. Went to the University of Iowa. I was going to go be next Tom Brokaw, make my name, fame, fortune in the world. And, and my freshman year there at the U of I, not a good year for me spiritually. I was not living under the lordship of Christ. I was a prodigal son in a far country. Uh, but after my freshman year there at the U of I, uh, the following summer, um, the summer job that I had was actually working at the Christian camp that I had grown up in. I liked working outdoors, and so I was going to cut the grass, and I was going to chop the wood for the campfire every night, and, and I liked working outdoors, and so I was glad to be at that camp. And of course, every night at this Christian camp, they would have chapel for the kids. And so usually during the evening chapel service, I would, I would slip in the back door and just stand there during the, during the music portion, the worship portion, because I kind of liked the music. I thought the worship band was cool. But when the preacher would get up to preach, I would leave. I didn't want to hear it. You know, didn't want to be convicted. But during the ninth grade week of camp, the preacher that week was this little guy named Bob Martin. Now, Bob Martin was 5'3", maybe 5'4", on a good day, but just this little bitty guy. Not what you'd think of as a dynamic, you know, youth speaker, never going to stand on stage at CIY and talk to a thousand kids. And yet, during that ninth grade week of camp, when Bob Martin would get up to preach... I'd be standing at the back, and for whatever reason, I couldn't leave. His words just reached out and grabbed a hold of me, and all week long, the Holy Spirit just began to do this, this blitz on my heart. And I, I don't know if you've ever been to a week of church camp, but if you have, you know how it goes. That, that the last night of church camp is always this super emotional night, right? The preacher gets up, and he preaches this convicting sermon, and he calls people down the aisle, you know, to make decisions, and, and they, they play the music, and always, I mean, it's just this emotional night. There's always this, like, big crowd of, like, junior high girls that come down at the invitation time, and they're crying, and they're, you know, going to rededicate their life to Jesus for the 17th time. You know that I'm right about that. And, <laughs> and, and this ninth grade week of camp was absolutely no different. Bob Martin got up, preached a great sermon, convicting sermon that night. And during the invitation time, this whole herd of crying ninth grade girls came down the, the aisle. And standing right there in the middle of them was one college freshman guy. And I had to stand up in front of that camp and just repent and say, I, I'd been running away from the Lord. It was time for me to get right. And I knew that for me, that meant going to Bible college and being a preacher. Now, what I did not know at the time, I found this out later, um, was that Bob Martin knew my story. He, he knew that I was a Jonah. Because what I did not know at the time, I found this out later, um, my hometown preacher, Brother Bill, was Bob Martin's brother-in-law. <laughs> and he had ratted me out, man. He told on me. And what I did not know at the time, I found this out later, was that Bob Martin had fasted that entire week. And he had prayed every single day for me, my name. And I'm convinced the reason I'm standing up here today is because Bob Martin prayed me back into the kingdom and prayed me right into ministry. Now, who is it that needs you to pray them into ministry? Will you say something? Will you pay something? But will you pray something? Because your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Pass the baton. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for those who spoke the gospel to us. And we pray that you would use us to raise up those who would speak the gospel to the next generation. I pray that from this very church, you would send out a tidal wave 
of workers into your harvest field. And we pray this for your glory and for the world's good. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.